Hello, and we're live. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. Welcome to Debut Spotlight. Today, I am so, so excited to introduce you to one of my all-time favorite authors, favorite friends, E.B. Bartels, and her absolutely genius debut, Good Grief. E.B., hello. Welcome to Debut Spotlight, and congratulations. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you on here. So for those of you who don't know E.B. yet, I'm going to read her bio quickly, and then we will jump right into our interview. So E.B. Bartels is a writer, editor, and teacher from Massachusetts. She holds a B.A. in Russian from Wellesley College and an M.F.A. in creative nonfiction from Columbia University's School of the Arts. Okay, this is a long bio, so just hang in. We're going to keep going. Her nonfiction has appeared in Catapult, Electric Literature, The Rumpus, The Millions, The Toast, and The Butter, among others. She also writes the monthly column Nonfiction by Nonmen for Fiction Advocate, in which she interviews women, trans, and non-binary people who write fiction. E.B. is an instructor at Grub Street. Hooray! That's where we met. An on-again, off-again bookseller at Newtonville Books and a senior editorial writer in the Communications and Public Affairs Department at Wellesley College. She lives in Boston. She lives outside of Boston with her husband, Richie, and their many, many pets. We have Terrence, who's a tortoise, Seymour, who's a dog, Bert, Dan, and Murray. Those are pigeons. And 11 fish, all named Milton. Those are my favorite. E.B., congratulations. So exciting. Your book just launched. Tell us, what is Good Grief about? Well, Good Grief um, started because I'm someone who's had a lot of pets, and unfortunately, those pets always die in the end. So I started writing some personal essays about pets I'd had and the ways um, I mourned and remembered them after they died. And then I started to incorporate some research of how people from other cultures, other places, other backgrounds um, mourn their pets, and it became this book all woven together. So to be clear, it is a book, basically good grief about dealing with pet grief, right? No matter what kind of pet you have and ways that people deal with it around the world and how they memorialize and talk about and celebrate their pets um, after they have passed away. Um, did I get that right? Was that yes, okay? Yes, definitely. So all types of pets, all types of rituals. It's not limited to just dogs and cats. I tried really hard to actually include as many different types of animals as I could. Yes. Um, so let's just talk for a second before we dive in. I want to ask you about the title of the book, Good Grief, because in my head, I knew this book first. You know what I'm going to say as dead pets, right? Yeah. So, but it is now called Good Grief. And I love when you talk about what this means, what it means and how the title came to be. So can you share that story? Sure. So um, in my head for almost a decade, basically, I was working on this book by myself, and I just called it Dead Pets. Um, and that's like the folder on my computer. And that's what I thought of it in my head as. Um, and then when I sold the proposal um, to HMH Books, they said, we love the concept, we need a new title. Um, because we thought we wanted this to be a book that you can give to somebody maybe who's just lost an animal. And I have a very dark sense of humor. So like I'm someone who would maybe think it was funny to get a book called Dead Pets when my dog just died, but not everyone. So um, when brainstorming new title ideas, I thought of Good Grief um, 
for three reasons. One, it's an homage to a very famous uh, human-animal relationship, Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Um, then also the fact I love the exasperated sort of tone because, like, good grief. Like, why do we keep having pets? They just die in the end. So why do we put ourselves through this torture? Um, and then good grief because, you know, there must be something worth it about having pets that we continue to go through this grief. And, you know, even if it's really hard when our pets die in the end, um, there's something really that makes it worth it. Yeah. So uh, Shannon Hansen says hi and notes that it's so hard when pets pass away. And I think that is exactly why people really are grabbing onto this book, why I loved this book when I started reading it, too. Um, so you open up um, and you begin by talking about uh, Mariah Carey and how you go to a pet cemetery. Right. And you find the gravestone for her cat um, and how there's this um, strange I guess, tradition in the world that we would mourn people, right, and take off time to mourn their passing. But Mariah Carey, right, maybe couldn't do that for her cat. But Fiona Apple did, right? You're showing these examples. It was just really, for me, it showed this deep understanding and recognition of pet love is real love. Can you just talk about that for a minute? Because I think that's the root of where this book starts. Yeah, I think that um, just as pet love is, is real love. I think that pet grief is real grief. Um, and I read a lot of books by psychologists and psychiatrists about grieving. Um, and so many of them said, you know, it doesn't really matter what you are grieving. Um, those, it hits the same way, right? So you can be grieving the death of a parent, but you could also be grieving, um, you know, a divorce. It's like the end of a marriage. You could be grieving a big move and a, living in a new place, or you could be grieving a pet pet's death. And those all sort of hit in the same emotional core because it's this loss. And so I think that often pet grief, people are quick to sort of belittle their own feelings because they feel like, oh, well, I shouldn't be as sad. Like I knew this death was coming when I adopted this kitten, you know, 15 years ago. So I should have been prepared, but it's the same grief no matter, no matter what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, who is this book for? So obviously this book is for anyone who has loved and lost an animal. Um, I feel like everyone has uh, who's come to an event so far or reached out um, has you know told me their own pet stories, which I love. Um, I actually am compiling them on an Instagram account called Good Grief Pets Book. So feel free to submit your stories there. Um, but I also really think this book maybe is for people who are um, new, newer to pet ownership or maybe haven't experienced a pet death yet. Um, I spoke to a lot of people who adopted animals during COVID who sort of, you know, told me they're nervous that this is their first, you know, dog they've had as an adult um, and starting to think about, oh, my gosh, like one day I'm going to have to maybe make the call whether or not to euthanize or, or make some hard decisions about my pet's health care. Um, and I really encourage people to think about those things and end of life choices they would want for their pet or even, you know, do you want your dog to be cremated or do you want to bury your dog in your backyard or, you know, do you want to have your pet taxidermied and think about those things well before your animal dies because then, you know, in the moment, once your pet passes, it's really hard and you're really upset and you kind of can get put on the spot and have to quickly make decisions that maybe if you haven't spent time thinking about previously, you can maybe feel like you chose the wrong thing later or, or you know, be upset with what happened. So I, I really encourage people to read this like, 
you know, I have a joke that I'm going to go to like the dog park and anybody with a puppy, like hand out this book and be like, start thinking about these things now. (laughs) But I think what you're highlighting too is one of the great parts about this book, which is that um, it is part memoir and it re- you really dig into yourself. And I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit. But okay. it is also really part research into this is what people mm-hmm. around the world throughout time that we know of, right? This is how they have celebrated and memorialized their pets. So can you talk a little bit and sort of take us through how you think about this sort of the hybrid format that you have put together in this book? Yeah, so I am... Um... In terms of the research, I was thinking about this almost as like an encyclopedia of like a collection of different possible paths you can take when your pet dies. Um, so something that's really hard, but also I think really freeing is that there's no one social standard when your pet dies. Um, so you can do all kinds of things and that can be both very exciting and very overwhelming. So I, I wanted to do this book as a way to you know have this broad overview and people could read it and think, oh my gosh, I never even considered, you know, getting a nose cast of my dog's, you know, face after he dies. I'm going to add that to my list of things I want to do. Um, And then I blended in my personal stories alongside the research because I find that people are often very protective of their grief around animals, sort of what I said before, you know, belittling their own feelings or, or worried that maybe people will make fun of them for the depth of, you know, grief they're feeling. Um, And I found that people were much more quick to open up to me and share their own stories when I also shared my own. So, you know, if I immediately said, you know, I had to miss a week of college when we euthanized my dog, I was a mess, you know, people then were much more open to sharing their own feelings and their own stories. So I wanted to put my own personal, um, you know, stories of pet loss in the book as sort of an offering for the reader to say, I have been there too. Here's what I've done. So can you just give us um, a taste of the kind of people that you interviewed? I mean, you mentioned getting like a nose imprint or whatever, right? And or like, what are some of the things that people do that you talk about in this book? Oh, my gosh. I interviewed so many people and I like I was really amazing. The number of people that you spoke to, the kinds of people. Yeah, I I just didn't have enough room to include every single interview. But I so I interviewed a couple taxidermists who do really interesting work for um, pet preservation. Um, I interviewed um, people who work at a cloning company um, in Texas, if you're interested in having your pet cloned. I interviewed a ton of artists who make pet memorial crafts, which like if you just go on Etsy and search for pet memorial craft, that was how I found everybody. Um, You know, I love that. You see something on Etsy and you just get in touch with them. I love that. And they make some beautiful, like um, there's glass beads where you can have your pet's ashes um, kind of like spun into the glass so you can wear them and then like feel like they're close to you. Um, I interviewed a woman who's also a vet who knits beautiful things out of your pet's fur so you can save up fur and send it to her and she'll knit stuff. Um, And then I interviewed tattoo artists and and painters and, um, you know, photographers, sculptors who all make really beautiful artwork tributes to animals. And and then, of course, I also talked to tons of pet owners and a lot, a lot of veterinarians for this book as well, because I thought it was important to get their perspective on this, too, since they're often very involved with your pet's death. Yeah. I mean, really what you underscore through all these interviews and all this research is just love and pet love is so universal. 
Yeah, and I um, one of my favorite um, pieces of research that I did was in 2017. My husband Richie and I visited our friends who live in Japan, um, and I dragged uh, poor Richie to this pet cemetery in Western Tokyo, and it was on a Buddhist um, temple. And you know, of course, the rituals were different, the practices were different from a lot of the pet cemeteries I'd visited in the United States. But like people were there, you know, visiting their pets' graves, leaving tennis balls and squeaky toys and like offerings. And I just love seeing that, you know, literally on the other side of the globe, people are feeling the same depth and, and love and loss, you know, for their animals. Yeah, it's so universal. All right, so I'm gonna read you um, just a couple sentences that are some of my favorite sentences in the book. I think I've told you this like already a bunch of times. For anyone who has the book, we're on page 35, but I'm just gonna read it quickly. Um, I panicked around my peers. I always felt like the jokes I made didn't land or I would bring up some book no one else had read or I'd say I didn't feel like playing kickball and get a weird look, being around my birds and fish. I could put on a bad Australian accent or belt out lyrics from Jesus Christ Superstar. I could be my most pure self around your pets. And I just thought that was so beautiful because I think that is a lot of why people love their pets. Um, and you're saying, so you're afraid to be yourself in front of your peers, but you are not afraid to be yourself on the page on this book. I want to know, were you afraid to put this out there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's writing nonfiction is is scary. And, you know, I, I do my interview series where I talk to all these different people who write nonfiction and, and everyone agrees when you're sharing things about your own life and your own experiences, it can be um, frightening to put it out in the world. But I've just found so many people, you know, when they've read things I've written, I've said, oh, my gosh, me too. And, you know, I also sing show tunes to my dog and switch out the <laughs> lyrics with his name and stuff like that. And again, I like what you're saying before, it's it's just such a common um, commonality between people. And I, I feel like it's it's so great to see um, you know, I interview people of all different, you know, uh, ethnicities, religions, races, genders, ages from all different parts of the country and the world. And uh, everyone, you know, kind of spoke the same way about their pets and just the the feeling they had around them. And I think a lot of it is getting to be that uninhibited version of yourself with your animals. Yeah. But I just think it took a lot of courage for you to put that on the page, too. And to put all of those feelings on there. So amazing job. Um, okay, so one of the things that really shocked me um, was you talked about um, pet care caretakers, I guess, or uh, right, the sort of the vets, the dog walkers, the people around pets who help, you know, help you with your dog or cat or turtle or whatever you might have. Um, and they're, of course, a huge part in pet, you know, play a big part in pets' lives. Um, and you brought up on page 71 um, some pretty scary statistics about veterinarians and suicide. And I had never known this. Um, and I don't think anyone, I've never heard anyone talk about it. So I just want to share a little bit, a few of the statistics that you put in here. Um, and you wrote, between 1979 and 2015, male veterinarians committed suicide twice as often as the national average, and female vets 3.5 times as often. A 2015 CDC study found that one in six veterinarians have considered suicide. Nearly every single veterinarian I spoke with for this book referenced the high rate of suicide among their colleagues. This was staggering and heartbreaking. Can you help me understand this and talk about it? Yeah, I mean, I had kind of heard about this 
peripherally before I started my research, you know, like, oh, the professions with the highest suicide rate is, you know, dentists and veterinarians. And at, when I really started doing the interviews and talking to the vets, though, every single one brought this up, um, especially the ones who were more recently out of vet school who talked about how they had to now take classes about burnout and about, you know, taking care of yourself. And um, I think what's what's really challenging about being a vet um, from at least what people shared with me for this book is, um, you know, when a person brings their pet to get care and it's maybe towards the end of their pet's life and the vet has to deliver bad news that either, you know, this is untreatable or, you know, the only option is a very expensive surgery that may or may not work. You know, when people are upset, they always are looking for someone or something to blame. And I think that vets often get caught in the crosshairs of, you know, that, uh, you know, upset and, and sadness. Um, and, you know, it's it's not their fault. Like pets get old and pets get old, uh, sick and pets die. And that's not your vet's fault if they're just explaining what's happening. But I think they can often become punching bags and a lot of the veterinarians I, I interviewed told me about, you know, getting bad Yelp reviews and having people, you know, um, harass them and call them and, and cry and, and scream at them. And, and a lot of the vets that were extremely, extremely compassionate and empathetic, understanding why people do that. But I think it just takes a, a huge toll. Um, and the other thing, too, which I thought was interesting was human doctors um, you know, specialize in certain areas, but a lot of veterinarians, you know, if you just do small animal medicine, which is like dogs and cats, um, you're expected to be both a pediatrician and a gerontologist for your patients, right? So you can see the same dog from being a puppy all the way until, you know, you have to euthanize them. And that can be really hard too, because you grow attached to these animals and you have to change your skill set based on their age and their needs. And that's just really uh, draining as well. And then let's deal with um, extreme debt because uh, it's almost as expensive to go to veterinary school as medical school, but the pay afterwards is not nearly the same. Um, and then the other thing too that really alarmed me with the suicide rate was that because vets often practice euthanasia on their clients, you know, or not on their clients, sorry, the people are the clients, their patients are the pets. Um, they know how to successfully end a life. So in some ways their a suicide attempt is often more, more success, successful with a vet um, than maybe with somebody in a different profession. Yeah. That was just so heartbreaking. And I was so glad to see you were bringing that out there, right? Because we need to think about that. Um, as Shannon is saying in the comments that she's had her vet for many, many years and she loves her vet. And I think um, for, you know, many of us are familiar with that affection and emotion, right? I mean, the vet is a big part of your life with your pet. So I'm yeah, glad I, you put that in there. I really wanted to include, um, you know, a chapter focusing on the vet perspective because I really feel there are allies in making sure our pets are happy and healthy. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, people are understanding about what the vet is going through as well, right? They're losing a, an animal that they love too. Yeah. So another thing that you talk about in the book that I also just really loved was uh, service animals or pets yeah. that, right, are seeing eye dogs or, you know, emotional support. Um, I love that you smiled when I said that because they're some of our favorites, right? So could you yeah. talk about that chapter a little bit and, and why that was important to you? Yeah. So, um, 
you know, obviously people have pets just for like joy um, and everyday happiness. But I loved hearing stories about people who, you know, work with animals who are, you know, their colleagues in a way. Um, and one of my favorite research days was I got to shadow um, a blind gentleman and his dog um, around Watertown, Massachusetts. And it was such a blast to just, you know, see how they cross the street together. And, you know, he's working on training him to press the, um, the button to make the lights go on the crosswalk. And it was just, it was so special to see that relationship because I think people have close friendships with their pets, definitely. But watching those sort of interactions, I was like, oh, they're, they're like peers, you know, working together. Um, and he described their relationship as being like dance partners in a way. And I just, I loved that. And so I, I also spoke to um, yeah, several other people who had service animals. And then I also interviewed several police officers about their relationships with their, their canines, which, um, you know, can be a, a very difficult uh, issue, you know, and often canine police dogs have been used in not great ways, but it was interesting to hear how these officers, you know, think about these dogs as their colleagues. Yeah. But I also love that you brought up um, these animals then retire, right? They get too old at some point. And then mm -hmm. there is the big question of what happens to them because they are used to being with their person, right? All day, every day. And so, um, you know, what happens with them next. So could you share some of those stories or one that, you know, sticks out to you? Yeah. So um, another um, uh, blind woman I interviewed um, named Kate, she told me she's had now had three, um, three service dogs and um, kind of did different things with each one. Um, the first one, when he got too old, she actually adopted him out to family friends because it can be really, really hard for a service animal who, like you said, is used to being with you 24 seven, putting on a vest, doing a job, having this purpose to suddenly just be stuck at home all day. And um, so a lot of people, sometimes when they have to retire an animal Feel like it's actually happier for them if they can go live and do something pretty different right so her dog went and lived on like a farm basically with this family and had a great but different life um her second dog she was so attached to that she actually decided she wanted to keep the the dog as her pet um so once you know she was too old to actually work anymore um she wanted to just keep her as a pet and she would uh she said she would return to using a cane to get around um like the white uh, cane and until that dog died and then she would get a new dog um so those are two different options that i i see people do um and a lot of the police officers i spoke to said that they um just kind of brought that the canines that they worked with um, then became family pets. And one of the officers said his his dog adjusted pretty quickly because he was home all day with his wife getting snacks. And so he was fine. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. But um, OK, so I'm just in awe when I talk to you about this book, when I read this book of the number of people that you interviewed um, and not just off of Etsy. Right. I mean, all these people that just keep coming up that you found. How did you find all these people to interview? Oh, my gosh. Um, two ways. One, social media was really helpful. I would put out calls on Facebook. I'm part of several pet groups on Facebook and I would post things like, hey, me again, I'm writing this book about pets dying. Um, does anybody have any experience with cloning or know someone who does? Let me know. Um, so that was actually a really great crowdsourcing tool. Um, and then the most valuable thing I ever learned um, in how to do great research interviews was the best question you can ask somebody is at the end of the interview, say, 
who else do you think I should talk to? Um, and so, you know, the, the first vet I interviewed for the book, um, she's actually my vet. She takes care of my dog Seymour. And I met her because she was a regular at the bookstore where I used to work. Um, but I asked her that question. And then she put me in touch with all of her friends from vet school. And then all of them put me in touch with other vets they knew who specifically worked in like animal hospice or animal oncology. Um, and it just like kind of splinters from there. And it's, it's um, you know, it was really great to kind of feel like I was plugged into this network of people who are obsessed with pets. So. Okay. And so the like organizing brain in inside of me here wants to know, how did you organize? How did you keep track of all of these interviews and these people? A massive, awesome spreadsheet. Uh, yes, it was a massive, awesome spreadsheet. And I, <laughs> I, um, I tried to kind of color code by different categories of, um, you know, like pet professions. So like all the veterinarian, uh, veterinary people were green, I think. And then people who were artists were blue. And then people who were like just pet owners, you know, and I was getting their story were yellow. So I kind of was trying to sort them. And then I would kind of look at it and be like, oh my gosh, I interviewed so many vets, but I haven't talked to that many um, I don't know, like dog walkers or groomers, you know, people who work with pets, but in a different way. Um, and then I also then actually, once I had written the first draft of the book, which I turned in in January, 2020, when I was rereading it and starting to revise it, I started to try to pay attention to the demographics of the people I spoke with. And I noticed different things like a lot of the vets in the first draft I spoke with were very early in their career. And so I made a note, okay, I want to find somebody to interview who's been a vet for like 40 years to get that perspective. Um, or I noticed, okay, I interviewed a lot of um, white people who grew up in the suburbs. And like, that's sort of interesting to think about who can afford to have pets, right? Or who could afford to grow up with pets. Um, so then I went out and kind of sought people who had grown up in the city or maybe, you know, were uh, children of immigrants or had, you know, different backgrounds, different races, and therefore different perspectives on pet ownership. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Oof, must be an amazing spreadsheet. I, I kind of love spreadsheets. So maybe yeah. you'll show it to me one day. I'll share it with you privately, but yes. it's, it's pretty intense. I don't know if everyone wants to see that. <laughs> I'm going to love it. Um, okay. So um, a lot of people who listen to my show are writers or aspiring writers, um, and they would love to know what was the hardest part about writing this book? Oh, man. Um, I think the hardest part was... Um, like reining myself in, honestly, I think that I sold this book on a proposal because I realized pretty quickly if I waited until I tried to write a full draft, I would never ever do it just because I could research for the rest of my life very happily reading about this topic. So the selling the book on the proposal kind of gave me hard deadlines that were like, okay, EB, you need to stop. Like you cannot read every single memoir about a dog that's ever been written. Um, I tried, I tried, but I did not. Um, and then once I was writing the draft, I um, the very first draft that I turned in in January 2020 was 115,000 words. My contract wanted me to write a 70 to 80,000 word um, book. And my editor was very sweet. Um, and she was like, okay, so you're going to need to cut this back a bit. And she was really nice and helped me kind of see, um, okay, this this stuff is sort of a repeated story uh, that you already said, or it gets the same point across. Um, and she kind of helped me because I felt like I was so deep in the research. It got tricky for me to see what was interesting to like a general reader and what was interesting just to me because this was like my life. Right. So definitely, I think, um, wrangling the research um, and figuring out, you know, what 
fit and what didn't. And it just yeah. like it hurt to cut stuff that I loved, but it, it can't all fit in. Right. So maybe those will be I, good grief too. <laughs> yes. I think we'd all be thrilled. Um, and I believe that a lot of that stuff you cut, then you were then able to reuse, right. For some essays that you have coming out soon. Is that right? That is correct. So I, um, I put a lot, all the stuff that got cut, actually one of my greatest tips that helps me cut things is instead of deleting it, just copying it and cutting it and putting it in a separate document that I named the graveyard, which felt fitting. <laughs> um, and that for some reason, made every me time I hear that, I just, I love it more. You've got so, the graveyard file. Okay. Yeah. And I've, I felt better because I was like, well, I'm not deleting it. I'm just moving it. But, but oh. then when I was starting to write some essays to kind of promote the book and, and talk about different themes, I went to that graveyard document and I pulled stuff that I had been kind of like bummed didn't quite fit in the, the final draft. But then I was like, oh, this could work as a standalone essay or some of it might even be in my next book. We'll see. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not gone forever and it's not a waste. You know, I feel like I sometimes felt like, oh my God, I overwrote so much stuff, but actually, you know, all of it is a process of figuring out what you're thinking and what's important. And so, you know, yes, yes, I love it. All right. So the next question is also one that my listeners love. Uh, they want to know, I want to know what advice do you have for new writers? Um, my biggest piece of advice is don't be afraid to talk about what you're writing about with other people. I think I can feel kind of um, nervous when I'm starting a new project and I'm worried, you know, because I'm still figuring out how I think about it. But well, if especially if you're writing nonfiction, you need to do research. I met so many people um, who I interviewed because I wouldn't shut up about what I was writing about. And so, you know, I would have people reach out and say like, hey, did you see this article? Or my friend just graduated from vet school. Do you want to talk to her? Um, so yeah, don't be afraid to talk about it and kind of bounce ideas off your friends and both friends who are writers and friends who are not writers. It can be really helpful, um, to get all different perspectives on that. And, um, I, you know, you don't have to necessarily share work like in a workshop, but at least like just talk about it and, and it helps you figure out your own thinking, I think as well. Yeah, I love that advice because I think some people are hesitant, they're afraid, right, to share that they're even writing a book, let alone what they're writing it about. And you're saying just get out there and share it. And I think people are also often afraid, oh, someone's going to steal my idea. And what I always tell my students is no one can write the book you can write. Um, because like for this book, you know, it's part of my, it's half my personal experience and half all this research and someone else could write a book with the research, but no one else can write the stories I can write about my life. Right. So I think, um, no one else will write the same thing with your perspective and your, your twist on it. So don't worry. No one's going to steal it. I love it. That's beautiful advice. Evie, I'm so excited for you. Good grief. Here is the beauty in all her glory. Congratulations. Thanks for joining me today. And may you sell many, many copies. Thank you, Rachel.